Why do men find it so hard to ask for directions? It's a thing, isn't it? And it may not just be men. My wife and I, our family lived in Dubai in the Middle East for about six years. I remember our first night alone in Dubai in our new apartment with the car that we had just been given, deciding to go out and explore the neighborhood. Our daughter, Samantha, was just a baby. She was not even a year old in the back seat. She fell asleep quickly. And I found myself accidentally going onto an on-ramp that very quickly shot us out onto a highway. And next thing you know, we were tooling around a city, and we had no idea where we were. This was circa 2012, so we didn't have GPS on our phones. We didn't have data there yet. We would get it in the years to come. I know it sounds so long ago, 2012. So much has changed. But we spent more than the next hour driving around Dubai trying to find our way back to the area of the city that we lived in. And at first, it was kind of exciting and interesting. But before long, my wife was getting frustrated because I wasn't pulling over and asking for directions. I thought, no, this is a good opportunity for us to explore the city, to get to know this city that we're going to live in. Eventually, I humbled myself, pulled over, got out, and asked a man for directions. And the man kindly offered not only directions, but offered for me to follow him. And he actually led me all the way to my exit, started flashing his lights, putting his hand out the window and pointing, this is the exit to take. And very quickly, we found our way home. Why do we find it so hard to ask for directions? Why do we find it so hard to ask for help? What is it about us that causes us to have a greater fear of admitting weakness than of actually getting lost? I think it's pride. And I think this pride resides in all of our hearts. There is a fear in all of us that comes from our pride of looking foolish, of admitting that we are in need of help. Even when we know we are, we don't want others to know it. In our passage this morning, we meet two people who are in need. They are in great need, and they know it. But their situation has gotten to be so desperate that they are willing to do whatever it takes to find the help that they need. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. We are returning again to a series, to a study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is one of four Gospels in the New Testament. These Gospels are records of the life and the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, who was also the Savior of the world. Luke records his eyewitness testimony so that we might be encouraged and have confidence that the things that we have heard and have been taught are true. In the passages just before our section, Jesus has been demonstrating his authority over different spheres and realms. 
He's demonstrated by calming a great storm in the Sea of Galilee. His power over the creation. And established that he not only has power over creation, but that he is the creator himself. Become man. In the passage directly before this one, what we learned last week is that Jesus has authority over Satan. He demonstrated this through his healing of the the demon-possessed man. And he showed in this miracle his intent to conquer the power of Satan and of demons and of sin and gave a precursor to what he will do in his coming kingdom. And in our passage this morning, Jesus demonstrates his authority over sickness, over disease, and even more than that, his authority over life and death. Our main point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. Our main point, Jesus saves from sickness and death. Jesus saves from sickness and death. And we'll be looking at three points this morning from our passage. And to help you remember them, they will be alliterated. Number one, desperation. Number two, disease. And number three, death. Desperation, disease, and death. And I pray that this morning, that as we see something of who Jesus is, that we would be willing to admit our weakness and need and come to him to meet every need. Not only healing of our bodies or deliverance from physical death, but deliverance from eternal death through his healing touch. Let's begin by reading the beginning of our passage. We're going to make it from 8 verse 40 all the way to verse 56. If you're not familiar with Bibles, uh, the larger numbers there are the chapter numbers and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We're in Luke chapter 8 and beginning in verse 40. Let me read verses 40 to 42. This is God's word. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So quickly for context here, Jesus is returning from the country of the Gerasenes, a Gentile region on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember last week, as we heard about these Gerasenes, remember the pigs, these Gentile people were raising and eating unclean animals. The demons enter into the pigs and very quickly destroy them. Uh, Jesus is now arriving back on the boat with his disciples. Now the Jewish people of Galilee are eagerly awaiting his return. And they welcome him. And this welcome is in sharp contrast to the reception and the response of the Gerasene people to Jesus. Remember last week, the Gerasenes were afraid at his display of power in casting out the demons and the result of the destroyed pigs. And so they had just begged Jesus to leave them. They had asked him, please go, deciding they were better off without him in their country. But here, the crowds are glad for his return. Why? Well, Jesus' miracles and teaching have been popular with the people, even if unpopular, with the Jewish religious leaders. However, Luke records that it is one of the religious leaders 
who is the first to approach Jesus with a request. A man named Jairus comes to Jesus. Luke records that he is a synagogue ruler, one entrusted with the local Jewish worship in his region. Now, quick background. What is a synagogue? Well, it was a local house of worship for Jews in a a local region. The synagogue was the place where Jews would gather on Sabbaths and feast days to worship. And depending on where groups of Israelites lived, travel to Jerusalem and the temple was often a very far distance, making the trip or the pilgrimage to the temple a relatively rare occurrence. So the synagogue filled the gap in religious life for these Jewish Christians. But it was more than just a place of religious gathering. It was the center of social life for these Jews. And it was through the synagogue that people had their standing in society with one one another. For this man, Jairus, to associate with Jesus was a step of faith and an act of serious departure from the religious establishment. He is taking a risk. He is stepping out of line of the policies of the religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees who have viewed Jesus with anger and suspicion from the beginning of his ministry. Going to Jesus was incredibly costly for this man. For context, turn very quickly with me to John chapter 9. Two passages quick in the book of John help us to understand the situation here. One, in John 9, Jesus heals a man uh, who was born blind. The religious leaders are angry. They're angry at this healing. And so they're doing research to try to figure out, was this boy, this man, really born blind? And so they ask the parents. And the parents in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, um, are called. You see in verse 18, the parents of the man who had received his sight are called. In verse 19, they're asked, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now imagine this. Imagine having a child born blind. Imagine that child, when he's an adult, finally being able to see the one thing you wanted for him. And now being so frightened of your standing in society being put into question that you're afraid to answer questions about his history. Look at what verse 22 says. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. In John chapter 10, towards the end of John chapter 10, we see others of the religious leaders afraid to confess Jesus as Messiah. John 12 and verse 41. Sorry, 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see what's happening here. These religious leaders are so threatened by Jesus. 
and are so fearful of losing their own position and power that they are threatening people with ostracization from society if they confess Jesus as the Christ. They are threatening to cast people out of society and shun them if they associate themselves with Jesus. And so there are people in Jesus' day who believe he is the Messiah, but are afraid to say it because they care more about their position in society and their place in the synagogue and in the broader culture than with actually confessing Jesus as the Christ. So what then drives this man, Jairus, a synagogue ruler, to break ranks? And to come to Jesus at all, given this risk, and even more, to come with such humility, falling at his feet and begging, imploring Jesus to come to his house. It is clear that this is an act of great desperation. And Luke tells us what has caused such desperation. Quote, he had an only daughter who was about 12 years of age. And the young girl and only daughter is dying. Ah, this is the desperate love of a father for a beloved child. I think most of us can imagine the great love of a parent for a child that would lead to such desperate action. Parents can feel this kind of love even more personally. And as a father, especially as a father of a daughter and only daughter, This story is gut-wrenching to me. I wonder if you have ever felt such desperation as a parent with a child that is at risk, that is in need. My son, my second child, um, was born with uh, eczema. And his eczema was so bad as a baby that his skin would not only have rashes, but would begin to crack and to dry out. And the cracking would get so bad that it would start to ooze. They called it weeping eczema. And then at times it would even get infected. I remember taking our little baby boy to doctor after doctor trying to figure out what to do. Remember an evening in the emergency room needing to give antibiotics to my six-month-old baby who didn't understand this. And then swaddling him to keep him from scratching himself because he was so uncomfortable and hearing him scream. And holding him, not knowing what to do. Feeling desperate. When you as a parent can't protect them, you feel helpless. And you will do whatever it takes to protect your little ones. That's what this man is doing. And yet... While this is clearly the request of a desperate man, the request carries with it an expression of faith in Jesus, faith in his ability to heal, to save his little girl. I want to speak for a minute about how desperate this man is and his act of desperation. He grovels on the ground, begging Jesus to help him to save his little girl. There is a perception in our world and in our society that it isn't right to be or to appear desperate, to appear needy. We tend to be conflicted when we meet people in need or who are desperate. It's awkward. We are uncomfortable with people who come across too needy. 
And we ourselves don't want to come across as needy to others or even to let people know that we have needs out of fear of how they may treat us. Even as Christians, we may be better at trying to imitate Jesus as the one meeting needs and serving and caring for others, and yet incredibly hesitant to demonstrate need or weakness to others. We feel it is a virtue to be or to appear self-sufficient, or at least appear so. Let me encourage us, friends, to glorify God by showing our neediness and our need to rely on God and our need as well to rely on His people. Uh, The writer Ed Welch, in his really helpful little book, Caring for Others, writes this, Our helpfulness, our care for souls, that is being helpful to others, That helpfulness starts with our need for care. We need God, and we need other people too. Our maturity as Christians happens through dependence. Let me say that again. We mature through dependence on others. On God first, and then on others. And then he highlights in his chapter on humility that one of the primary ways that we put our humility to the test is asking for help, particularly asking for prayer. Let me encourage us Christians to have a culture among us that is counterculture, a godly desperation rather than an appearance of self-reliance. Self-reliance doesn't glorify God. It promotes ourselves. And as Christians, we are saying anything but we are self-reliant. We are, and our only hope is in being God-reliant. We want to live pointing ourselves and others to Christ. Let me encourage us to have a Christ-oriented desperation, a culture of Christ-centered neediness, and then a culture where we respond to one another by caring for one another, by meeting needs, by bearing burdens, by confessing our own needs and allowing others to bear our burdens and the culture in which we bring one another to God. Look then at how Jesus responds to this request, to the faith of this desperate man. What does he do? He agrees to go with him. Look at Jesus' tenderness here in responding to this request, his willingness to go where there is a need. How kind of Jesus to encourage the faith of a desperate man. He goes. Let me encourage us as well, like this man, to run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Jesus loves to receive desperate people. Even in our desperation, He isn't too proud to receive us when we are desperate. He will not reject us for our neediness. In the words of the the old hymn, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Remember those words again. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. And then the resolve, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. 
you're here and you're not a Christian, know that Jesus will answer if you call on Him, if you go to Him. He knows your needs better than you know yourself. And He is able to help. The hymn goes on, Don't let conscience let you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. What that poetic couplet means is don't let your conscience, knowing how sinful you are, keep you from going to Jesus, nor imagine a time when you're going to be more fit and deserve Jesus' help. No, all the fitness that He requires is to feel your need of Him. There is no way that you can earn or deserve Christ's tender love and healing power. The only thing that He calls of you is that you realize your need and go to Him. And He promises to answer the prayer and the call of any sinner that would come to Him, repent of their sins, turn to Him and trust in Him for healing for eternal healing and salvation. Notice as well, Christians, that Jesus in His tender love is interrupted and willing to be interrupted to meet this need. We should be like Jesus, able to meet cases of urgent need and willing to help where we see people in need. That's point number one, desperation. Point number two, disease. Point number two, disease. I'm going to begin reading in the second half of verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around Him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Here, as Jesus is going on His way to Jairus' house, Luke records that there is another person in need and in desperation. Luke records that she had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, quickly for context, her condition here was painful and embarrassing. And her suffering was in many ways a private one, so intimate. She was not able to easily share this with others, especially uh, in a culture that prized fitting in so much. Her condition was also isolating. According to Jewish law, she was unclean. The Mosaic law had restrictions about many things, and in the Mosaic law, all manner of sickness would render the person unclean and unfit for being a part of society and to take part in the worship of God. Now, many different kinds of sickness would render the person unclean. We met a leprous man in Luke chapter 5 who was unclean because of his skin disorder, his leprosy. And Jesus heals him. Anyone with sores or discharges of any kind would render the person unclean. There was a concern here with contagious sickness and diseases spreading, but at a much deeper level, these laws spoke to our situation before God. They were to serve as a picture of our spiritual uncleanness before a holy God. So in these laws, touching anything unclean spreads that uncleanness to you. Uncleanness, according to the Mosaic Law Code, was a one-way street. A clean person could not pass their cleanness on to you, but an unclean person, simply by touching you, would pass their uncleanness on to you. And so... Her condition was isolating. Her condition also, according to 
This passage had left her empty-handed. She had no more money. She had spent them all on doctors who could not help her. Now we can speculate this perhaps this condition had kept her from getting married. We don't know. From having children? I assume so, at least through those 12 years. And this woman is another kind of desperate, a different kind of desperation and helplessness, going to doctors, spending all of your money, and none of it being able to help. The girl who lay sick and at death's door is in a desperate place, both for her and for her family. This woman's situation is desperate in another way entirely. Though she may not be near death, she's been suffering with her debilitating condition for as many years as that little girl has been alive. Twelve years, it says. And after twelve years of enduring this suffering and isolation, she was left with no answers and no hope of healing. For all of the days of twelve years, until one day, until one day she hears about this man named Jesus. She hears reports. There's a man who can heal the sick, who can make the lame to walk, the blind to see, who can heal a man with leprosy with just the touch of his hand, who can cast out unclean spirits with a word. This man sounds an awful lot like the Messiah described in the Old Testament prophets, the one who came to give sight to the blind, legs to the lame. And so she reasons, if he can heal such things as these disorders and sicknesses, he must have the power to heal me as well. And so she resolves to go to meet him that she might be healed as well. Now imagine what it might have been like for this woman to find Jesus in a day before GPS, finding his location at the right time. Uh, When my wife and I were first married in Washington, D.C., this goes way back. 10 10 or 11 years, there was a cupcake truck in D.C. that would tweet out its GPS location. This was circa 2010 or 11. My wife and I would tool around the city trying to find it, trying to get there in time after they had posted their tweet. We're trying to get there before all the cupcakes were sold out. And a day before GPS, these crowds would, by word of mouth, attempt to find Jesus. And here it appears the crowd had gathered in Galilee awaiting his return from the east of the Sea of Galilee. Who knows how long they'd been waiting there. It might have been days. And when he comes, they're excited and they welcome him. And this woman is among them. Today is the day that she's been hoping for, waiting for. But on that day when she's finally found him, finally close enough to see him, to be near him, she's afraid. She wants nothing more than to be healed by him, but her confidence falters. Perhaps she wonders what the people will do if they learn that an unclean woman is in their presence. And bringing her uncleanness into the crowd, will she be brought public shame by the crowd's rejection? Or is she perhaps afraid that Jesus would reject her if he were to meet her? Whatever her fears, 12 years of suffering and isolation have made her a combination of fearful but desperate. And so in her fear, she desires to remain anonymous. But in her faith and desperation, she attempts to be healed by Jesus anonymously. A private healing. If I can just touch the edge of his garment, I'm sure I can be healed by such a man as this. And the second she does, 
the second she touches his garment, she is instantly healed. Look at verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. We spoke earlier of the Mosaic cleanliness laws. That uncleanness spreads and that the clean had no power to render the unclean clean. Well, of those biblical categories, all of those biblical categories of clean and unclean are exploded in this moment with Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is so holy that he spreads cleanliness with his touch. He makes the leprous man clean with his touch. And here he heals the unclean woman. Not even with a touch, with her simply touching the edge of his garment. Immediately. What a wonderful scene. These miracles are, for us, snapshots. They're sneak peeks. They're spoilers of Christ's coming kingdom. They help us to see something of the kingdom that Jesus is going to usher in one day. A glimpse of the eternal life and eternal bliss that awaits Christ's people. Jesus has authority to heal the sick and to cleanse the unclean. And this is what He will do one day eternally. He will make His people whole, wiping away every tear and taking away all pain and sufferings. But these miracles also are a demonstration of Jesus' authority, giving us confidence that Jesus can save us, not only from our physical needs, but from our greatest spiritual need, the forgiveness of our sins. The Bible is clear that for all of us, all of us are needy. And for all of us, our greatest need is perhaps a need that we don't feel on a regular basis the need of being reconciled to God. The Bible is clear that we have been separated from our Creator God because of our sin and our rebellion and our rejection of Him. Our first father and mother, Adam and Eve in the garden, rebelled against God. They attempted to dethrone God and to put themselves, to put ourselves in His place as King. And because of this, we deserve God's judgment and wrath. The Bible tells us good news that though we deserve punishment from God and deserve rejection by God and that that relationship has been broken through our sin, that our God in His love for us has come and pursued us and pursued such reconciliation through Jesus and His incarnation. Jesus, God, became man so that He could bring us back to God. Jesus came to earth to meet our greatest need, our spiritual need, our need to have our sins forgiven and to be able to be reconciled into a relationship with God. He was then raised from the dead, from the grave, showing His power over sin and death and His ability to give new life to those that are spiritually dead like us. These miracles that Jesus is doing demonstrates His authority and gives us confidence that Jesus can save us from this greatest of all spiritual needs, the forgiveness of sins. So let me encourage you, friend. Put your confidence in Christ to save you entirely. But know that your greatest need is not physical or material. It's spiritual. Trust Christ. He is the Savior for sinners. And here, 
Jesus spreads his holiness to make this woman clean. He makes her holy as well. Now imagine if you were this woman going, what kinds of emotions are going through your mind and heart in such a short amount of time? You're healed at the touch. Joy, I'm healed. Relief, finally, after so many years of time and effort. Hope, my whole life can be different now. My whole future can be different now. And faith, this man truly is all that witnesses have reported. But then another emotion enters in very quickly, fear. The man has stopped. He's speaking. He's looking around. He's looking around for her. He's asking, who touched me? Look at verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, and you're asking who touched you? Everybody is touching you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. This woman desired to remain anonymous, but Jesus does not allow her to remain anonymous. Now think for a minute what would have happened if her healing had remained private. Imagine the difference between an anonymous healing and the joy that comes in of her actually meeting Jesus, entering into a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus did not remain for her some miracle worker that she had received a miracle from. No, she now meets him as her own personal savior. And while she was afraid, Luke records, she's literally trembling from fear. There is so much joy awaiting her in this public introduction to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you know that it is good for us as Christians when our private faith goes public. It's good for our private faith to go public. It is one of the first things that Jesus calls us to do when we have come to know him in salvation is to go public with our faith and be baptized, to stand up before a congregation and the world and say that Jesus is my Savior and to declare of the wonderful things that he has done for us. For some of us, it may feel like the most frightening thing to do, to make our faith public, to do anything in public. But yet it's good for our faith to stand up with boldness and declare Christ to be our healer and Savior. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to take joy in a public faith and to grow in confidence as your faith becomes more and more public, as you share with more and more people about your Savior Jesus. I think you'll also find, Christian, that sharing the gospel with others, with non-Christians around you, as scary as it is at first, will actually serve to strengthen your faith. There is something about the, the simple fact of publicly declaring to another person this gospel message that you believe and often believe in private when it goes public, when you tell it to someone else. You'll find your faith in that very truth strengthened as you speak the gospel to others. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, 
to share the gospel, yes, for the good of others, but ironically, for your own good as well and for the good of your faith. But look as well at how Jesus speaks to her so tenderly. Look at how he addresses her, verse 48. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. As I was studying this passage, I was thinking of Jairus, who's having to wait. Clearly someone in a hurry trying to get Jesus to his house so that Jesus can heal his daughter. He's having that journey put on pause as Jesus attends to this woman. Do you notice what Jesus calls this woman? Daughter. You notice that this then is a tale of two daughters. Jairus' daughter, but here Jesus' daughter. It's also a tale of two fathers. Jairus, who's desperate for his daughter to be healed. And Jesus here healing his own spiritual daughter. This woman who is in need. How amazing that Jesus shows himself to be a loving father to this woman as he heals her and also brings her into a relationship with him. As we imagine Jairus impatiently waiting, we see at the end of this interaction with the woman that messengers come from Jairus' house to report that this man's worst fears have happened. That's point number two, disease. Point number three, death. Point number three, death. Let's read and begin reading in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. She will be saved. You see what is happening here. These people believed in Jesus as a miracle worker. They believed that he had power over sickness and the ability to heal those who were sick. But also, what is believed by these people is that his power, his authority, ended at death's door. These people believed that at death's door, Jesus' power stopped because death is the great leveler. Death is a one-way street. There's no coming back from death. I remember in college going through a period of great uh, depression and discouragement and doubt, questioning my faith, wondering whether or not it was illogical and irrational to be a Christian, whether being a Christian was intellectual suicide. And I found several Christian writers helpful. One of those was C.S. Lewis in his apologetics works. Remember reading his book on miracles, where he defends miracles before the philosophers who deny it. And he made a very, a very simple observation that has remained with me to today, and I think you can see it in our passage here, that these people were not superstitious. There's an argument among philosophers and among those that attempt to debunk the Bible that people thousands of years ago were superstitious people who expected miracles to happen at every turn and weren't surprised when they did happen because they assumed that they were true. But do you see the people here, as we'll see farther down as well, as these um, mourners laugh at Jesus when he says this girl is only sleeping. These people were not superstitious. 
They understood that there is no coming back from death. That does not happen. And they are shocked when Jesus seems confident that death is not the end and that death's door is not the end of his authority and power. You see what Jesus says to this man and his faith. He tells him to not be afraid, but only to believe. There's a contrast Jesus is making between fear and faith. Think of all the fears that this man has. Fear of losing his daughter. Fear of uh, how much this will hurt and wreck his family. Fear of death itself. A fear that every human being experiences. And yet Jesus tells him, not be afraid of death. That death has no power that can cause us to fear or to despair when Jesus is near. But he says only believe. Jesus is declaring that he has authority and power over death itself. Look at verse 51. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. That is, they were scorning him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Here is Jesus, not simply healing the sick, but raising the dead. It's a remarkable passage, a passage that should take our breath away. This man, Jesus, is demonstrating his authority over life and death itself. Jesus is actually able to, with a word and with a touch, bring someone from beyond the veil of death back into the land of the living, and he does it with this little girl. And he gives us a snapshot of what he's going to do at the end of time with his people. He is going to raise all of his people from the graves. He is going to reunite us with him, to live with him forever. He's going to make us new eternally and bring us into a fellowship with him that will never end. I wonder if you are afraid today. I wonder if you are afraid of death. It's natural. Death is the great leveler. And if you look throughout human history, one for one, 100%, every person that has been born in this world has eventually died, and it's a reality for all of us. And the fear is we don't know what goes beyond death, what's there unless we know Jesus. Because Jesus is, for us, the one person in all of human history who went through death and came back in order to give us new life and eternal life, resurrection life in Him. Jesus, this is what He has done in going to the cross. He is defeating the power of sin and death. And He is in Himself the firstfruits back from the dead. The one who will not only himself be raised, but who will raise all of his people eternally. 
This is what Jesus has come to do to conquer the power of sin and death and to defeat all of sin's power and to overcome God's judgment against sin in all of its forms, whether sickness, whether disease, or death. Jesus has come to be the one to overcome death. And this is why he went to the cross for sinners like you and me, so that we too would not need to fear, but only believe in him. Jesus' followers one day would be standing in front of his cross, standing in front of his grave, and believing that death was the end. But as they would come to find out three days later, it was not the end of the story, but only the beginning of the new life, the resurrection life that he came to bring. No, Jesus, after he died, death could not hold him. He came back from the dead. And he made a way for all of us who repent of our sins and trust in him to be healed, not just physically, to be raised, not just from physical death, but to be freed from the eternal death and judgment that God has given to sinners so that we can be free indeed. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to be putting your faith in Christ, to be putting your hopes in Him, knowing that He and He alone saves from sickness and death, and that He and He alone can give us confidence that He will heal every sickness and disease, and that he will raise us one day if we believe in him from the grave. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that he receives needy souls like us. Thank you that he does not reject us for our neediness and desperation, but that he invites us into his healing and into his resurrection life. We pray that we would be a kind of people who are not fearful, but are full of faith. We pray that we would not be a kind of people who attempt to be or to look self-reliant, but are Christ-reliant. We pray that we would be the kind of people that are excited to tell others of this great healer and Savior as needy people who have been healed and saved and delivered from death, who delight to tell others where they can find the same. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.